for uh, making it again. Um, if you Google Rock of Ages, uh, the first thing that comes up is not the hymn we just listened to, but in fact the 2012 musical uh, starring Tom Cruise and Catherine Zeta-Jones, which uh, features the music of such luminaries as Def Leppard, Poison and Twisted Sister. Um, it, it does at least promise us nothing but a good time. It couldn't really be any more different from the famous hymn it was named after. Last week we sang one of the most uplifting and positive hymns in the hymn book. But I suspect when you encounter today's hymn, nothing but a good time is not the first phrase that comes to mind. But whilst its pace and tone may initially sound rather downcast, I hope as we look at it today, you'll come to see that it actually shows something amazing about God's character and is one of the most profound and beautiful hymns in our hymn book. In many ways, it's not dissimilar to its writer. Augustus Toplady was a complex individual and probably not easy to get to know. Gentle, humble and caring, deeply spiritual, he was loved by his parishioners. But he was also a bit of a loner who became embroiled in a bitter theological dispute with John Wesley, amongst others. And for many years, this tainted his reputation. Born in Farnham in November 1740, his father was a major in the Royal Marines, but died just five months after Augustus was born. He therefore grew up an only child and formed a pretty solitary figure for much of his short life dying aged just 38. He found his faith as a teenager and was ordained when he was only 22, initially serving as a curate in Blagdon in Somerset, close to the Cheddar Gorge. And if you believe the uh, sign painted onto this rock in Burrington Coombe, which is a couple of miles from Blagdon, it was here that one day, as he sheltered from a violent storm, that the inspiration for Rock of Ages came to him and he quickly scribbled the words down on the back of a playing card. It's a wonderful romantic story, uh, but it's also completely untrue. It was, it was invented after his death by a local landowner trying to drum up some visitors. In fact, his inspiration, a bit like the man, is somewhat less flamboyant. It's a verse from the book of Isaiah. It says, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, our Lord, is a rock of ages. Last week, we saw a God, a big God, who could create a trillion stars with just his word. A God who is powerful, holy, and perfect. And if you remember, we looked at how that meant there was a separation between us. You will remember that we imagined ranking all of humanity from uh, the very best to the very worst on a, on a big list on the side of the church. And then asked, where would God be on that list? And we realised he would be infinitely beyond that. So that no matter where we were, whether at the top or the bottom, really made no difference in terms of our relationship with God. Because the gap was still infinite. But we also talked about a God who wants to be close to us, who created the flowers, who knows the number of hairs on our head, and who loves us. 
a God, therefore, who wants to close the gap between us, not by coming down to our level, which would mean him no longer being God, but by lifting us up to his. And we finish by saying that the rescue plan he put in place to do this was to send a man called Jesus, who Christians believe is God, to live and to die on a cross. And it is the cross that is the centre of this hymn and what I would like us to look at today. But before we do that, let's just consider for a moment who Jesus was and what we can know about him. Well, the first thing is, there can be no doubt that he was real. Not this man, but there was a real Jesus. He, 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 there was a man called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away from here. This man claimed to be a prophet, and he was executed and died on a cross, punished by the Romans. The evidence for this is overwhelming, not just from Christians, but from Jewish and Roman writers at the time and records uh, which were written down by, by others. So the question we need to ask ourselves is not whether Jesus existed, but was he who he claimed to be? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Now, if you ask most people in this country who Jesus was, they'll probably say he was a good man, a spiritual man, a great moral teacher who taught about love and how to live a good life. And they are right, to a point. Because if you actually read what Jesus said about himself, I don't think he ever intended us to draw that conclusion. This is someone who said, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. See, he wasn't claiming to point the way or to teach the truth. He was claiming to be the way, to be the truth. To quote C.S. Lewis, who, uh, we, who sums these things up so brilliantly, if a little bluntly. He said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The other thing about Jesus is that for all his teachings and for all the quality of his life, his primary focus and the focus of the New Testament writers and of the Christian church ever since has been not so much on his life, but on his death. Have you ever thought what an odd symbol the cross is? We wear it around our necks. Most churches are in the shape of a cross. There's a very large one hanging at the end of the aisle inside the church. 
But if I walked in today wearing a guillotine or an electric chair around my neck, you'd think I'm rather odd. And yet we think nothing of wearing a symbol of arguably the most brutal and cruel form of execution ever invented. So why do we focus so much on the cross? Why is almost a third of the Gospels about Jesus' death? Why did Jesus himself talk so much about it? The answer to that is Christians believe it is through Jesus' death and his subsequent resurrection that our relationship with God can be restored. Last week we talked about the gap between us and God and the barrier that prevents us closing it, which the Bible called sin. And the New Testament tells us that the only way we can break through that barrier was for Jesus to die on the cross. It says Jesus died for our sins. Now, you may ask, surely, if God is God, why can't he just wave a magic wand and get rid of the problem? It seems so obvious. But the thing is, there's a problem with that, and that is because it ignores both the seriousness of the problem, the depth of the separation between us and God, caused by our imperfection, and also the nature of who God is. See, for God to just ignore the gap, to ignore sin, to deny it exists, would mean he would have to deny himself, his very nature, his holiness and his godliness. Let me try and explain. There was once two small boys who went to school together and they were the very best of friends. However, as they grew up, their lives went in very different directions. One did really well. He went to university, he studied law, he became a successful lawyer and a senior judge. But the other one fell on hard times. He lost his home and his family. He fell in with a bad crowd and turned to a life of petty crime, living on the streets. The years went by and there came a point where this man was arrested and he was sent for trial before a senior judge. That judge turned out to be his old school friend who recognised him and realised immediately that he faced a dilemma. As a judge, he couldn't just ignore all that the man had done because if he ignored the law, then the law would have no value. But equally, he could see how his friend had suffered and he loved him. So as a judge, he found his friend guilty and handed down the correct full sentence, which was a large fine. That was justice. And he had to do that to be true to his own standards and to the law. But he also loved his friend. So he took off his wig, came down to the dock, and wrote out a cheque for the full amount of the fine. He then gave it to his friend, saying he would pay the penalty for him. That is what the Bible tells us God did for us in Jesus. You see, the penalty, the result of our separation from God was death. And we couldn't pay that price. Only Jesus could. And he has done that 
on our behalf. It was St. Anselm, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century, who said, Only man should pay for his sins, since it was he who was in default. But only God could make this payment, since it was he who demanded it. Now, at the root of this is a really important fact that's so often misunderstood when people look at Christianity. You see, just like the, friend, uh, the criminal friend in our story, we don't have the means to pay the debt. We can do nothing to save ourselves. It's at the cross where Christianity is shown to be different from every other religion and every other system of belief. You see, they all say one of two things. Either there is no God or there is no such thing as sin, or there's no real consequence to a difference between perfection and imperfection. Or they create ways in which man can earn his way back to God through good works or fulfilling certain religious uh, steps and practices. They give man a role in his own salvation. But Christianity, when understood properly, does neither of those things. It confronts straight on the seriousness of sin and the problem that creates for us in our relationship with a holy God. And it confronts straight on the fact that we can do nothing to save ourselves. Christianity is a religion where everything is done by God. We neither can nor need to do anything other than to hold out our hands and say thank you. The Bible in the book of Romans says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is what I love about our hymn today. It's, it's Augustus Toplady completely understood this. He couldn't really have been more clear. Not the labour of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. You see, no matter how hard we try, we can never meet God's standards of perfection. We can't ever be good enough or do enough. The gap, as we saw last week, is too big. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? See, also, it doesn't matter how earnest we are, how sorry we are, how good our intentions are. They still can't close the gap on their own. Because all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. In the end, Augustus' top lady saw that everything has to come from God. Only God can rescue us. And so he concludes, effectively, we are utterly helpless before God. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Now, this does all sound rather downbeat. And I certainly think many people who sing this hymn see it as a rather downbeat and depressing hymn. But I honestly don't think this is what Top Lady thought. And it certainly isn't what I think. You see, whilst at the cross, 
We cannot escape our emptiness before God's holiness and his majesty. Neither can we escape that God loved us so much that he paid the ultimate price to bring us back into relationship with him. On one level, if you like, we are worthless because we're helpless and lost. But within this, Jesus' death shows us that we are priceless. Because God's love is poured out for us and for us alone. He has paid the highest price possible to redeem us, to buy us back, to rescue us. And that is because we are of infinite value. We'll sing the hymn uh, shortly. And as we go through that, try and reflect that you know, as we look at those words, that yes, uh, we are helpless, we are naked, bringing nothing to God. But actually, isn't that wonderful? You see, if we were involved in our own salvation, you could never be sure if you were good enough, if you'd done enough, if you were safe. I can't even keep to the speed limit. If I had to rely on me to be good enough for God, I'd be on pretty shaky ground. But instead, the rescue plan God put in place has, was completely finished by Jesus and is rock solid. God is our rock of ages. And all we need to do is say thank you and accept his most wonderful gift. Now, I know today has been uh, quite a serious session. Uh, I promise next week will be much brighter, okay? Um, but ultimately, the things we are talking about are important. And if you don't mind me being serious for just a few minutes, I hope that is helpful, and I think they deserve a little bit of our time for serious inspection. But the good news is, the story doesn't end where we are today. Because after Good Friday came Easter Sunday. After the cross comes the resurrection. After the payment of the penalty comes the freedom of a life lived to the full. And we will look at that and, and try and understand that there is so much more that God does for us uh, next week when we'll look at the hymn Amazing Grace. But for now... Let's uh, sing Rock of Ages. Uh, please stay around, uh, enjoy some more coffee and cake afterwards. Perhaps talk to those around you about anything that stood out from today's talk. And uh, I'll look, really look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you.